Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. We haven't done our vocal warm-ups. Okay. Hello and welcome to Chickstery, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name is Annie and I'm joined by Nanana. Nanana? Nanana. 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 I mean, I've been called a lot of things. That's not one of them. It's Phoebe. Hi, Phoebes. Hello. Hello. We're back. We're back. I'm so excited to be back. Me too, me too. Lots of amazing stories still yet to tell, which is good and bad uh, because it does show that, yeah, they, this is never ending. Mm. Lucky for you listeners, it means that we'll be here for a while longer. <laughs> so every week, uh, Phoebes, you tell us a little historical fact. What have you got for us this week? little factoid. This is one I've just learnt um, in the last few weeks and it's about carrots. I know. Yes. I know. Brilliant. Yes, brilliant. So did your parents or anyone around you ever say, you've got to eat your carrots so you can see in the dark? Yes. It'll make, yes. It'll make your eyes better, just like yes. us make your hair curly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that expression was actually coined during the Second World War and was essentially a propaganda campaign. So during the 1940 Blitzkrieg, uh, the German Luftwaffe often struck their enemy, England, um, under the cover of darkness. In order to make it more difficult for the German Air Force to hit their targets, the British government issued citywide blackouts, which was something that also happened here in Australia at the time, or brownouts where, you know, it wasn't so dark. Yes cover your windows, no lights on, used to have to cover Ooh. the lights on your car, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, so they couldn't see the target. Yeah, right? so you weren't yeah, so you weren't targeted. Mm. Uh, there was a myth that British pilots ate lots of carrots so they could see in the dark during their night flies. To explain how pilots could detect enemy planes because radar was still top secret. Right. So they were the um, uh, communities were told that, you know, they ate their carrots, that's how they could see. Little did they know there was actually these radars that had been um, had been invented. Yeah. Uh, so basically they propagated the idea that they ate lots of carrots for the vitamin A and the beta carotene and helped them to see in the dark. There were quite a few propaganda posters, which happen quite often, well, in any scenario like that, but particularly during the Second World War. One of them read, night sight can mean life or death. Eat carrots and leafy green or yellow vegetables rich in vitamin A, essential for night sight. There was another one, which was just a simple message. Carrots keep you healthy and help you see in the blackout. Getting straight to the point. So I wonder if carrot sales skyrocketed. Well, there was um, a program which started here as well, which was, oh, I can't remember what it's called. It's like um, dig uh, victory gardens so you'd plant you'd plant your gardens and then because everyone was on rations um, and then so the British Food Ministry of Food also released campaigns which introduced cartoons such as Dr Carrot 
as well as a war cookery leaflet that promoted carrots as a sweetener for desserts due to the absence of sugar because it was rationed. And the leaflet was filled with all sorts of delectable carrot-based foodstuffs such as carrot pudding, carrot cake, carrot marmalade, carrot flan, and something called caralade. And which I had to look up. And so that was a drink made of carrots and swedes. Oh, carrots I can do. Carrot juice, I mean, you know, in a juice is fine, but sweet in a juice. Yeah. So to make this very refreshing carolade, you had to grate equal amounts of carrot and swede, squeeze the grating through muslin cloth and just drink it up. Delicious. That's it. Anyway, so there's my fun fact about carrots. If you're new to the podcast, by the way, we take turns telling each other stories about women from history. Probably should have said that at the start. But um, anyway, there you go. If you haven't already listened to the previous seasons, you don't need to because it's not like a story that keeps going. But you you could do it just as a favour. You should. You should. Okay, you should do it as a favour to us. Go back and listen to some old episodes. They're going to be just as good as this one. You're going to get just as annoyed and angry at the stories we're going to tell you. Um, So go do it after you you listen to this one. Mm. So Ruth Handler was born in 1916 in Denver, Colorado, to Polish Jewish immigrants, and she was the youngest of 10 children. We know they like to small football teams back then. Mm, And no contraception. Mm. Uh, Ruth met her husband, Elliot, uh, when they were both just 16. They were high school sweethearts. And in 1938, when Ruth was 22, well, they were both 22, they married and moved to L.A., And Ruth became a secretary at Paramount and her husband, Elliot, uh, was designing lighting fixtures. As a hobby, they started experimenting with different types of plastics and would start making items like bowls and clocks that they would sell out of their garage. Ruth's first daughter, Barbara, was born in 1941 and her son, Ken, was born in 1944. No, no. Okay, you're blowing my mind. (laughs) So although Ruth uh, had a career, between 1941 and 1944 she stopped working and, as she calls it, had to play mother and raise her two children. So it's also during this time um, as World War II was raging, many women also had to become quite entrepreneurial, which we know a lot of the stories that we tell of women kind of come into the light during war times because they had to. So it's at this time that Ruth dreams up the idea of creating a company that will manufacture and sell plastic toys. She first suggests her idea to a family friend known as Harold Matt Matson, and her husband, Elliot, who is now back from war, thinks this is a great idea and he comes up with the company name. Mattel, which is a combination of Matson's Matt and Elliot's L. Brilliant. Now, although this was Ruth's idea to come up with the company and to start um, manufacturing toys, unfortunately, uh, her husband and Matt just couldn't work out how they would fit her name into the company. Just wouldn't, just, just <laughs> make sense. So, really, Mattel should have been called. Matruth. Ruthel? 
Ruthal. Ruthamal? Ruthmat. 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 Ruth, alas, was not represented in the name of the company, but she did serve as the company's first president. One of the first things that Mattel started manufacturing was toy furniture, and after the success that they saw of this business, they moved fully into toy manufacturing. Some of the earlier products included a plastic ukulele and a xylophone. Everything you need and more. What child doesn't need a a plastic xylophone? Mm. Come on. Okay, so uh, at this time there were already quite a few plastic toy manufacturers in the market, so Mattel had to do something really big to stand out. So in 1955, Ruth suggested that they do something that no other toy manufacturers were doing. It was risky and some would say crazy, but they decided to do it anyway. They bought a TV commercial in the Mickey Mouse program. So nobody had directly marketed to children before, uh, so this was a first, and the ad cost them the net worth of the entire company, (gasps) around $500,000, which in today's money is about $5 million. Wow. Wow. So as you can imagine, a lot of people in the company thought she was cray-cray mm. and, um, yeah, they were like, what, what are you doing? Now, this is before um, Barbie. Mm-hmm. So this, that, that, there's, there's a spoiler. <laughs> spoiler there. <laughs> what did this woman invent? <laughs> if you hadn't got it in the name of her children. <laughs> Um, so guess what the first product, the first toy product that was ever mass marketed to children was? A gun. You got it. Oh, did I? That was a complete guess. Yep. They, it was a very real looking gun. It was a type mm. of automatic rifle. Because we know America's great with guns. Mm. We know that children are great with guns. Yes. So let's spend $500,000 on an ad for a toy gun. Um, so where the boys were busy playing with their guns, Ruth noticed uh, how her daughter was playing with dolls and they were mostly paper dolls. I don't know if you remember. I do remember getting these paper dolls in magazines and you would rip out the little outfits and put the outfits Dress them. Dress mm. them. Yeah. So she noticed that her daughter was using them as a prop to live out an aspirational life. Ruth was fascinated by the way that uh, they imagined the dolls as their older selves. She told the New York Times once, every little girl needed a doll through which to project herself into her dream of her future. So, and dolls at the time were babies. So a lot of children, Mm. little girls, would be given babies to play with, which I just think is so weird. And it, it is a sign of the patriarch. Right? Well, yeah, you're playing mummies. You're playing mummies and that's Mm. all you're good for. So Mm. you play mummy and here's your baby and here's your little pram and go take your baby out for a walk because there is nothing else really that you can do. So Mm. do that. So in 1956, the family take a vacation to Lucerne and while they're there, Ruth walks past a toy store window and notices a couple of dolls dressed in glamorous ski outfits and she'd never seen anything like this before. So she went into the store and she purchased one for herself and one for her daughter. So 
So the doll that she purchased was called the Lily doll and it was based on a German cartoon character. And she was pretty racy. Um, She was known for her sexual encounters with men, mostly wealthy men. And the whole moral of the Lily doll story was that as long as there were men who had big checkbooks and she had what they wanted, a.k.a. sex, everything would be fine. You do you, Lil. Go, Go girl. girl. So who do you think these Lily dolls were for? I don't know. I didn't want to say that because it sounded quite perverse, but yeah. Anywho, but these dolls were mostly purchased as gag gifts uh, between oh. men. It was almost mm. like um, a three D pin up, mm-hmm. and the dolls were advertised with very provocative um, ads with captions like "Gentlemen prefer Lily." Oh, weird! Mm, it is weird. Yeah. So back at home in America, Ruth realised her son Ken, <laughs> brilliant. Had so many options when it came to toys. He was able to imagine himself as a firefighter, as an astronaut, as a cowboy, and even a surgeon. And while Barbara's toys mostly consisted of the cardboard cutout dolls, where you changed their little outfits, and baby dolls. So Ruth got together a team to develop what would become Barbie based off the Lily doll that she had purchased in Lucerne. Ruth says if her daughter was going to do role-playing of what she would be like when she was 16 or 17, it was a little stupid to play with a doll that had a flat chest, so I gave it beautiful breasts. Now, I don't know about you, but at 16 and 17, I I don't know if I had beautiful breasts, but that's another story. (laughs) That's for the After Hours uh, podcast episode we'll be doing later. So Ruth enlisted the help of a guy named Jack Orion and Jack actually worked on guided missile systems used by the US military. <laughs> I mean, first choice, right? So obvious. Yeah, really aligns. Let's get, let's get the guy who works on guided missiles to help engineer the Barbie doll. Mm. So this guy is responsible for developing her iconic twisting waist and her bendable mm. knee joints. Mm. So given that Barbie was based on this German uh, Lily doll, Ruth instructed her team to make her look classy instead of cheap. They were concerned that she looked a little rough. So Jack got to work manufacturing the first Barbie doll in Japan where most of the Mattel products were currently being made. Ruth insisted not to change the shape of the doll too much but she did concede that a few things needed toning down so they toned down some of her makeup they made her lips less pouty slimmed down her shoulders and they got rid of a widow's peak that she had because that's that says my mother's got a widow's peak (laughs) fascinating Mm. yeah it's weird detail that they thought you're right, though, because who is it? The villain in Snow White? Yes. She's got a widow's peak. Right, yes. And possibly Absolutely. Cruella de Vil in the um, yes, Disney right. cartoons. You yeah. Right. There was one small detail that absolutely had to be removed. Each time the samples would come back from the factory, they had nipples. <laughs> it was the way you said that with a straight face. <laughs> They had nipples. They had nipples. Mm. And bit. this was a bridge too far even for Ruth. So Jack would get out his little file and file off the nipples and he'd send them back to the factory and say, no, 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 copy this, no nipples. Mm. 
So once I was eventually happy with the prototype, she needed a name. So Ruth first suggested that she would call the doll Babs. <laughs> Babs, no nips. <laughs> no nip Babs. <laughs> Uh, so that was actually her daughter's nickname, um, but the team didn't agree to Babs. So instead, Barbara Millicent Roberts, or otherwise known as Barbie, was born. Welcome to the world. Welcome to the world, Barbara Millicent Roberts. So now that she had a name, she needed some clothes. So Ruth employs Charlotte Johnson to design Barbie's first fashion line. So this is also marketing genius from Ruth's um, side because not only could they sell the Barbies but they could sell the accessories and the clothing as well. It's also notable to mention that Charlotte is a legend in her own right. She didn't just design the clothes but she also negotiated the contracts with the manufacturers in Japan, which at the time was unheard of. Women didn't negotiate anything, especially Mm. in Japan, dealing with Japanese companies. Charlotte would find inspiration from singers and celebrities and career women. And one of her out, one of her first outfits, which was a black dress with ruffles down the back, was designed after Charlotte saw a singer performing at the Waldorf who would always carry around a handkerchief. So she made Barbie a pink handkerchief to carry. Cute. Uh, so this formed the basis of Ruth wanting Barbie's clothes to always permit whoever was playing with her to pretend that they were doing some kind of activity. Barbie was busy. She was mm. always busy. She was always doing things. It was important to Ruth that she was a career girl um, and Barbie has had over 250 different careers. She is a busy lady. Her busy lady. Mm. Ruth wanted to make sure that she was always inspiring young girls to be whatever they wanted to be. And in 1965, forever ahead of her time, some 13 years before women were admitted into NASA, Ruth introduced an astronaut Barbie. Barbie also became a surgeon in 1973 when less than 10% of doctors were women. She also has served in the military, joining the US Army in 1989 and three years later she became a sergeant in the marine where does she find the time one of the jobs barbie has never had though was being a mother despite requests from mom barbie mattel has refused because ruth envisioned the doll as representing the period before parenthood Mm -hmm. even though ken was later introduced obviously named after her son Mm -hmm. uh, as barbie's friend Ruth uh, wanted to ensure that Barbie stayed a single career girl. So Ken and Barbie have never married and Ken is typically seen just as another accessory. Mm. Fun fact, I didn't know this. In 2004, Barbie and Ken broke up. (gasps) She later dates Blaine, an Australian surfer. Sick. Also, is it not a bit weird that they're actually brother and sister? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, it actually uh, is. It is. Mm. It is. And I guess that's why they could never marry and have yes. children. Mm. That would be weird. Yes. They were more brother and sister, which mm. they were. Which they were. Mm. Um, but Ken, this is hilarious. After Ken underwent a makeover that included spending time in the gym, <laughs> he won Barbie back in 2011. <laughs> Fuck off, Blaine. You're out of here. Ken's gone and joined an F45 
and he's come back and like, I mean, I feel a bit sorry for Blaine, but anyway. Mm. Um, another fun fact, in 2002, Barbie's married friend Midge, <laughs> which I didn't know that Barbie had a friend called Midge, was sold as a pregnant doll complete with a removable womb. Oh. But some consumers uh, claim that it <laughs> prompted teen pregnancy and it was pulled from the shelves. So Ruth's next step was to come up with a marketing campaign to sell Barbie. So she set about doing in-depth market research with dozens of parents and hundreds of kids. The outcome of the research was that kids loved her, but the parents hated her. Mothers saw Barbie as a sex object and they didn't want their little girls growing up too quickly and playing with the doll that wore pink negligee. How risque. Risky. What did come from the research, however, was that mothers thought it was very important to groom their daughters to become good wives and desirable to men so that they could get a husband. So this would become the main marketing strategy for Mattel. And this is also why people think marketing is evil, because it is. (laughs) So all Ruth had to do was convince the mums that Barbie will make her daughter want to aspire to be a well-groomed, put-together young lady that would be desirable to prospective husbands. It's better to have your daughter be desirable to a man in a sexual way than, heaven forbid, be undesirable and end up a spinster. I mean, this is why it's troubling. The Mm. bug is troubling, but Mm. I kind of also like the fact that she was a career girl. So... Mm. Um, Although the campaign idea today makes us shudder, Ruth and Charlotte, the costume designer, made sure that Barbie's outfits always depicted a busy career girl. Her first career was as a fashion designer and she came with a little sketchbook. Oh, love it. Now I'm just going to play you this, which is the first ever Barbie ad. You won't see it, but you can hear it, hopefully. Barbie, you're beautiful. You make me feel my Barbie doll is really real. Barbie's small and so petite. Her clothes and figure look so neat. Her dancing outfit rings the bell. At parties she will cast a spell. Purses, and hats and gloves galore. And all the gadgets, gals adore. Barbie dressed for swim and fun is only $3. Her lovely fashions range from $1 to $5. Look for Barbie wherever dolls are sold. Someday I'm gonna be exactly like you. Till then I know just what I'll do. Barbie, beautiful Barbie. I'll make believe that I am you. You can tell it's Mattel. So they really went hard with the message of you can be just like... Barbie. Mm, Barbie. Okay, so in 1959, Barbie debuted in a black and white swimsuit in a TV commercial and also at an American toy fair in New York City. The toy fair didn't go well. Most of the buyers, men, rejecting the idea that an overtly sexual doll with breasts would not be popular with kids and that they wouldn't want a toy like that but the public were saying something different they were literally flying off the shelves in 1959 Mattel sold 351,000 dolls 
in the first year at $3 per doll. Demand for the doll was so high that Mattel had to add factory capacity and warehouse space to keep up with demand. Now, remember that Barbie was born from an already existing doll. And in 1961, the original makers of the Lily doll, Griner and Hauser, sued Mattel for copyright infringement. Two years later, the case was settled out of court and in 1964, Mattel acquired the patents and copyright for the doll. So Ruth stayed on as the company's executive vice president until 1972, where she was forced to resign after being indicted by a federal grand jury for conspiracy, mail fraud, and making false financial statements. Ooh, ouch. Ruthie. Mm. The indictment charges claimed that Ruth and the former executive VP of Mattel falsified internal business records concerning earnings and sales from 1971 through to 1973. Following several investigations of producing fraudulent financial reports, Ruth resigns. The investigations continue after her resignation and in 1978 she was charged with fraud and false reporting. Uh, She pleaded no contest and was fined $57,000 and sentenced to 2,500 hours of community service. During this time she was also battling breast cancer and she actually says that the reason that she had kind of done what she did was because of her lack of focus due to her illness. After she was diagnosed, a forever the entrepreneur that Ruth is, she soon realised that there were no good breast uh, implants available. So she decided to make her own. So she sets out going into business with one of her friends, Peyton Massey, and they formed a new company called Ruthton. (laughs) Get it? Ruth Payton. Ruthton. Ruthton. She finally got her company name. Ruth came up and manufactured a more realistic version of a woman's breast called Nilly Me. The invention became quite popular and then First Lady Betty Ford was even personally fitted for one. This also wasn't the end of her Barbie story either. When Jill Barrett became Mattel's CEO in 1997, the first of the company's two female CEOs, she invited Ruth back to Mattel for the first time since she departed the company 22 years prior. Ruth died in California from complications of surgery for colon cancer uh, in 2002, aged 85. Her husband, Elliot, died nine years later at the age of 95. They were married for 63 years. Oh, wow. The Los Angeles Times reported that Ruth sometimes acknowledged her inventions of both busty Barbies and prosthetic boobs by quipping, I've lived my life from breast to breast. (laughs) I love it. Ruth is portrayed by Rhea Perlman in the 2023 film Barbie where she's depicted in her elder years as a spirit who resides at Mattel headquarters. Today, there are approximately 100 Barbies sold every minute. Wow. And that is the story of Ruth Handler, Barbie and boob inventor. Well done, Ruthie. My sister cut off um, all my Barbie's hair. I thought you were going to say boobs. No, that would have been hard, wouldn't it? No, she gave more crew cuts because she thought that that hair would grow back. No, No. I have not seen the movie yet. Nor have I. By the time this comes out, I probably will have. (laughs) But I can't wait to see it. And um, now 
also, if you're yet to see it, now you know a little bit more about mm. the history of Barbie and also the woman behind her. So we'll be back next week with another amazing Chicks Tree. Make sure you follow, subscribe, like, review, tappy, tappy roo. Whatever you choose. (laughs) But anything, any of those is a big help. So thank you. We'll be back next week and we will chat to you then. See you then. Bye. 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 